Welcome. This is Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to discuss the infamous right-wing reactionary Supreme Court and the recent tyranny they've been carrying out against the American people, ending Roe v. Wade and blocking student loan forgiveness, among many other things. I'm also going to discuss U.S. mass incarceration, police violence, the military-industrial complex, manufacturing consent, the proxy war in Ukraine, and end with some commentary on the COVID economy and the post-COVID world. I hope you enjoy this episode of Necessary Illusions. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. continues to make headlines, as it garners a rather infamous reputation, and the right-wing reactionary element of this institution will presumably be in power for at least another generation, as Republicans continue to flex their power and stranglehold of the American court system. The Supreme Court is the most powerful court in the land, and this tyrannical body is controlled by unaccountable technocrats and ideologues who enjoy a lifetime appointment, seemingly immune to popular pressures and accusations of corruption, dereliction of duty, and what have you. So the calls for Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito to resign for allegedly accepting lavish vacations and generous gifts, all from Republican donors in the billionaire class, who are also the funding source for many of the right-wing lawsuits brought against the American people, like the one to block Biden's plan for student loan forgiveness, for example, is simply met with contempt and usually falls on deaf ears from the establishment. According to Pew Research, a 61% majority of U.S. adults say abortion should be legal in all or most cases. This has become a very partisan issue in the United States, with 72% of Democrats in support of abortion, while only 39% of Republicans support it. This is just another instance of Republicans throwing red meat and pandering to their evangelical base, since the party realized they can no longer steal elections with their policies alone. So now their candidates pretend to be religious in order to pick up a significant percentage of the American electorate, because the United States is still one of the most radically fundamentalist and religious countries in the world, perhaps a generation behind Europe and other industrialized societies, where atheism and agnosticism is slowly becoming the majority. Of course, the last time the Supreme Court was expanded by Congress was on April 10th, 1869, when it settled on the present total of nine. Back in 1869, the U.S. population was roughly 39 million people. Today, the population has swelled to 331 million, effectively placing all those people under the rule of a handful of elitist technocrats. Since the last time the United States Supreme Court was expanded, the United States population has experienced a growth rate which has exceeded 800%, not to mention 100 plus years of cultural shift and change in attitudes, which leaves many people on the left proclaiming that expanding the court is way past due. 
On June 30th, 2023, the Supreme Court struck down Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, which was a plan to cancel up to $20,000 in student debt. I always love when they throw in the caveat up to, because, you know, there's almost no way anyone's going to qualify for the full amount. But anyways, moving on. The proposed plan would have potentially helped 40 million student loan borrowers who are doing nothing but trying to advance their own education. But what many of them have fallen into is a debt trap and it might take a lifetime to pay off. And these predatory financial institutions can also garnish Social Security. And the right even wants to transfer that debt to family members if you die, an exceedingly twisted and sick form of class warfare. And of course, America is just about the only country in the world that doesn't offer free or nearly free higher education. And most of its citizens are for K-12 public education, but for some reason, when you propose four years of college or graduate school, a lot of Americans look at you like you're the ghost of Karl Marx. And of course, student loans are a term mostly unheard of in the rest of the industrialized world. And the student loan decision struck down by the Supreme Court comes at a time when 73% of Americans are in support of forgiving $10,000 in student debt, with many of those polled without any student debt themselves. Another 63% of Americans say that Biden's plan didn't go far enough, and with a strong majority in support of canceling $50,000 of student debt. The court ruled that the president didn't have the authority to cancel the debt without the approval of the completely dysfunctional Congress, which has a current approval rating of less than 20%, and which often flirts with single digits. Of course, Congress had no problem in approving massive tax cuts for the rich, as well as corporations during the pandemic. And, for example, in 2020, their airlines were bailed out to the tune of $5 billion in cash and $10 billion in loan guarantees. So this just shows us that in what's called capitalist democracy, it's okay for government to work on behalf of the rich and powerful. But when government works on behalf of poor people or working class people or student debtors, the right and left come together to stop any progressive legislation dead in its tracks. And now let's move on to the Paycheck Protection Program, which forgave $755 billion in loans, with most of those benefits going directly to the wealthy, a program that costs nearly double than that of Biden's student debt proposal. And the Paycheck Protection Program is a wonderful piece of propaganda because it was framed in a way that would benefit small businesses. But naturally, most of that money went to larger businesses. It was also found that of the $810 billion in triple P loans, only about 35% went to employees. The rest of the money landed directly in the pockets of executives, owners, and shareholders. The program didn't even protect paychecks as millions of Americans were fired and laid off during the pandemic and many of those jobs may never return. This reminds me of a funny and probably more sad quip about the COVID economy. Because most of the time, when the stock market goes up, employees get nothing. And when it goes down, we all get fired. But during the COVID economy, it was probably the only time when the stock market actually ballooned, and yet employees were still laid off, fired, and got nothing. As of the first quarter of 2023, the student debt crisis is now up to $1.78 trillion, up 1.1% from the fourth quarter of 2022. The federal government owns about 92% of all student debt, and canceling all of it would not burden U.S. taxpayers. That date would just simply disappear. The federal government and the Federal Reserve can create money out of thin air just as easy as it can cancel it. Total U.S. student debt has tripled in the past 15 years. So while the Biden administration boasts about canceling $66 billion in student debt so far, it's laughably inadequate. And since 2020, when the interest rates were paused on the student debt by the Trump administration, the total debt has climbed another $100 billion, 
dwarfing whatever measures the Biden administration has taken so far. And obviously the right-wing claim that Biden is the most progressive U.S. president of all time is merely propaganda and is also laughably false and factually untrue. So while canceling $10,000 in student debt per borrower is rather insignificant when compared to the now nearly $2 trillion student debt crisis, it's a start, and still better than nothing. However, instead of using his authority as president over the U.S. Department of Education, he instead chose to invoke the HEROES Act, using waivers and modifications to eliminate a very small amount of student debt, which was challenged in court as expected by a group of GOP states in a case that was well-funded by the billionaire class and backed up with by propaganda from right-wing think tanks to garner public support. But, as we all know now, the Biden plan to cancel student debt was struck down by the right-wing Supreme Court in a move that many of us on the left already expected. So now, Biden plans to backdoor the cancellation by using his authority over the Department of Education, which is probably what he should have done in the first place. The student debt debacle is a well-paired example that coincides with the Paycheck Protection Program, which showcases that government is allowed to work, again, for the rich, but if there's even a hint that government is working on behalf of working people or student debtors, then that policy will be struck down or at least determined by the Supreme Court to be unconstitutional. I think it's just wonderful that the Supreme Court can manipulate the Constitution in basically any way that it wants in subservience to wealth and power and that it's able to call anything it doesn't like unconstitutional. And now let's remember a time back in the 1930s when the Supreme Court tried to block income taxes on the wealthy and stop minimum wage. This was also a time when the Supreme Court authorized basically any means necessary for the repressive forces, security forces, and the police to use violence to smash up labor unions and working class organizing efforts. This was the Great Depression, and it wasn't until basically World War II that labor finally make a comeback and fight back in this usually one-sided class war. So let's get back to modern times. Who benefited from the Paycheck Protection Program? Well, many of the most adamant opponents of the student loan forgiveness policy, including many public servants, Republicans, and members of Congress, and another rampant display of hypocrisy at its finest, because the United States government is the best government money can buy. And now the U.S. transitions to full-on oligarchy or plutocracy, which is basically government by the rich, or even worse, kleptocracy, which is basically a quagmire of greed, money, and corruption. This might be a good time to mention that U.S. confidence in public institutions is dwindling across the board. We've already mentioned Congress, but the Supreme Court just sunk to a new historic low of 25% confidence as of June 2023. It might also be worth mentioning the now famous Princeton study of 2014, which concluded the U.S. is no longer a true democracy, but it is instead an oligarchy. And my only criticism with this phrase, no longer, is that I question whether the U.S. was ever a true democracy. But I guess you have to speak in relevant terms when you can compare governments around the world. But I would like to say that the U.S. democracy was never anything great from its inception in 1776, and that I've never met a system of government that I've actually liked. And now I'd like to mention some hypocrites specifically. So a shout out and special thanks to Nebraska Senator Megan Hunt for some of these quotes and figures who's a supporter of working-class Americans and human rights. So, for example, a vocal, a vocal opponent of student loan forgiveness was Nebraska Attorney General Mike Hilgers, who's a beneficiary of Hilgers PLLC, which is a company that received $295,000 in triple P loans and had more than $297,000 in those loans, all forgiven. And now on to State Senator Deb Fisher, whose Sunny Slope Ranch 
has paid $244,000 for private cattle to graze on public lands that would have cost $7.9 million on the often lauded free market. Let's also remember that Sunny Slope Ranch has received millions in subsidies and loan forgiveness over the years. And who could forget or forgive Representative Mike Flood, who said in a quote, The only person responsible to repay a loan is the person who applied for the loan. Meanwhile, as a beneficiary, his company, Flood Digital Networks, LLC, received $835,000 in federal loans and had more than $840,000 in loans forgiven. So I guess for Senator Flood, who gives hypocrisy a bad name, it's free market capitalism for thee and generous state protections for me. Or to quote Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we all too often have socialism for the rich and rugged free market capitalism for the poor. In whole, at least $13.7 million in COVID relief funds went directly to companies in which members of Congress or their families are owners or well-paid employees, according to Small Business Administration's data. Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, has a $1.3 million investment partnership with EDI Associates and the Piatti Restaurant Company, which received $2.4 million in Triple P loans. Other direct and indirect connections include House Labor Appropriations Chairwoman Rosa DeLauro of Connecticut, Iowa Democrat Matt Cartwright, Oklahoma Republican Kevin Hearn, Florida GOP Rep. Vern Buchanan, Representative Roger Williams, a Texas Republican, Representative Mike Kelly, a Pennsylvania Republican, and Republican Devin Nunez of California had two wineries which collected a minimum of a million dollars each in relief funds. Democrat Christine Mann received funds to finance her re-election campaign. This hypocrisy is right on brand with the neoliberal Washington consensus, which was accelerated by Reagan in the 1980s to the present, which basically slashes funding for public education and health and basically any program like Medicare or Social Security that might in some way improve the lives of working class Americans and poor people. So what's called neoliberalism is really nothing more than class warfare. And it's not new, nor is it liberal. Tuitions for higher education in America have risen every year since 1981. In 1965, average tuition for a four-year college was just under $5,000 per year. In 1990, it had shot up to just under $8,000 per year. From 2001 through 2021, average tuition and fees have jumped by 69%, from $8,082 to $13,677 per year. Prior to the neoliberal onslaught, the budgets for colleges and universities were mostly funded by state and federal taxes. However, today, the bulk of the funding now comes from tuition. There is also a huge influx of private capital funding American higher education institutions, and the corporatization of the U.S. education system continues up until the present. And now, because corporations invest billions of dollars in higher ed institutions, they also want to have some say in curriculum development, institutionalizing capitalist dogma, right-wing ideology, and indoctrinating students with the capitalists' preferred way of higher ed research has also suffered. So instead of funding long-term projects and topics of interest for students, research is now more dedicated to the short term, with the intention of spinning off that research for profit motives. So what we get is an educational system motivated by greed, the same kind of greed that's fundamental to the entire capitalist economic system, and where institutions are basically tasked with preparing and training the next wave of workers for a lifetime of servitude to capital. 
So the objective for these institutions is not teaching students to be open-minded and think critically about the world or to ask difficult questions about the political and socioeconomic system, but instead to be obedient tools of production, trained to be ready to help corporations rob, exploit, and enrich themselves, while at the same time destroying the environment and the planet as a whole. And these colleges and universities have basically become education factories. And while most still enjoy nonprofit status, many of them are sitting on mountains and mountains of cash, and they could all easily lower tuitions and provide free or at least more affordable college to all students, including those that are less fortunate. And a question I have is, why do these colleges need all of this money? It's absolutely ridiculous. As of 2022, Harvard was sitting on a $53 billion endowment, Yale, $42 billion endowment, Stanford, $38 billion endowment, Princeton, $37 billion endowment, and MIT rounding out the top five at a $27 billion endowment. That's absolutely absurd. Shifting gears slightly, I'd like to talk about the huge student debt amounts that new grads are stuck with, which serves to instill discipline, limit choice, and freedoms. Because if you come out of college with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, you really have very limited options. And what you'll probably have to do is get a job with a corporation so that you can have a salary high enough so that you can afford to make payments on that student debt with the intention of maybe someday paying off that debt amount in your lifetime. So if you're a new grad, you can't take a gap year and travel or get involved with politics or activism or help fight for human rights. You have to instead start working for a paycheck. And if you're a lawyer graduating with big debt, maybe originally you wanted to go to law school to get involved with environmental law. But that doesn't pay well. So what you might have to decide to do when you graduate is get a job with a large corporate firm. So maybe you planned on doing it only for a few years to pay down that balance. But you start to like those big paychecks and the privileges associated with your place in society, in your profession. And before long, you're institutionalized and you never get an opportunity to pursue your passion, the passion that you signed away for a diploma and a pile of debt. So let's get back to the primary focus of this episode, the U.S. Supreme Court. Was it always this partisan? Was it always so radically right-wing? And my response to you would be, you mean the same organization that legalized the institution of slavery, that counted African slaves as three-fifths a human being? then my answer would be yes, a resounding yes. American democracy was never all that great to begin with. It's quite clear and obvious. You just have to look beyond the lies, misinformation, propaganda, and necessary illusions presented to the population every single day. So at the founding of the country, who was given rights from the so-called democratic government? Rich white male property owners. That's it. Period. So if you were fortunate enough to be a member of the landed aristocracy in 18th century America, United States democracy is pretty great. But if you were an enslaved African, a Native American, or a woman, U.S. democracy didn't actually exist. Of course, over the years, things got markedly better for blacks, indigenous, and women, who all eventually won the franchise. But not after a long, hard struggle against the right, whose constant attempt to limit democracy, to narrow it, and to take away voting rights away from people. Like felons, for example, who served their time and paid their price to society, but still can't vote in U.S. elections, at least in most states. Our task on the left should always be to fight for democracy, to expand it, and to also fight for human rights, especially for those that are less fortunate. And now let's remember a time way back in 1789 when the Supreme Court was founded by the U.S. Senate with a Judiciary Act. But the Constitution, however, did not elaborate on the exact powers or prerogatives of the Supreme Court. And, just like Congress in those early days, the Supreme Court was appointed and the Founding Fathers gave the Supreme Court extraordinary power and unaccountability from the public, making lifetime appointment the standard. 
living. In the United States, it started with elections for the executive, the president. But over the years, elections for Congress have also been held, and its members are no longer appointed. As democracy has been expanded, congressional candidates are now expected to win their seats, and their terms are explicit and finite in length, but not for the Supreme Court. They continue to be appointed and are hand-picked by the same elites that they are expected to serve, and their term limit is lifetime and indefinite in length. When investigating the new government that was put into place with the inception of the United States, we might first want to analyze some of the clues left behind by the founding fathers and people that created it. So in their arguments at the Constitutional Convention, the main framer, James Madison, articulated some of the problems with democracy that Aristotle first mentioned over 2,000 years ago in ancient Greece, which was supposedly one of the influences for American democracy. And that problem was basically that if one group of people accumulated all the property and wealth in society, the other group, the majority, would use their political power to dismantle it and divide it up more equally, which according to the ruling elites would be unjust. But there's two ways to circumvent this problem, at least. And the first solution was supported by Aristotle, namely constructing a welfare state in an attempt to raise the living standard for everyone, not just the minority. And of course, this is a very socialist and progressive way of thinking, which is in line with the modern European welfare states that we see in today, like the Nordic countries. And, this, and they include public health care, education, higher education, daycare, unemployment assistance, food, clothing, shelter, and resources for the homeless. But the right wing in Europe and abroad want to relentlessly dismantle this welfare state because it provides a template for the rest of the world to have a more benign and benevolent society. But a more benign version of capitalism doesn't exactly address some of the systemic injustices and problem within the greater system. So why ask the king to be more benevolent when we can just overthrow the king and introduce a better system of power, one that promotes human rights and freedoms and empowers people the right to free association, one that also allows people to express their creativity, and perhaps the system could be structured around the community or worker-owned and controlled enterprises. Let's also not forget that there are massive problems in Europe, and that's because the fight for democracy, human rights, and freedom is never over. However, James Madison, on the other hand, argued the opposite solution as a counterbalance to what he might call too much democracy, or is often articulated by elites as the crisis of democracy. And that was, of course, to limit it by creating a system that would limit voting rights and participation and instituting a constitutional government that would be extremely difficult to change, one that is entrusted to unaccountable technocrats, Supreme Court justices, which defend the property rights of the landed aristocracy. So who is this system of government designed to protect? Well, to quote the first Supreme Court justice, John Jay, those who own the country ought to govern it. Or... To quote the framer of the United States Constitution, James Madison himself, the role of government should be to protect the minority from the majority. And over the years, those rich white property owners, including many of them who owned slaves themselves, became extremely wealthy and powerful in America. But that was pre-capitalist, so eventually, individuals of extreme wealth and power were replaced with corporations which are the vehicles the ruling class use to rob, plunder, and exploit the rest of the world. And these rich and powerful corporations are of the scope and scale that the founding fathers probably couldn't have even imagined. 
So while the American Revolution was successful in overthrowing kings and queens at the pinnacle of authority and power, they've now been replaced with corporate executives and CEOs. Colonial America was pre-capitalist, but Thomas Jefferson did see the beginnings of these corporate structures forming in front of his eyes, and he was lucid enough to articulate his concerns. So after his presidency, he was quoted as saying, The end of democracy and the defeat of the American Revolution will occur when government falls into the hands of lending institutions and moneyed incorporations. Thomas Jefferson was also very sympathetic to revolution, stating that we need a revolution every 20 years just to keep government honest. God forbid we should ever be 20 years without such a rebellion. The people cannot be all and always well informed. Of course, when Thomas Jefferson was talking about people, he probably meant rich white property owners, not slaves, which he owned many of. Over a century later, American philosopher John Dewey said of the modern corporation and its influence in American politics, As long as politics is the shadow of big business, the attenuation of the shadow will not change the substance. So we can make policy standards that make corporations less harmful, like raising taxes to curb their greed and profit-seeking motive, or limiting their ability to pollute the environment, or instituting human rights standards and labor laws so that they don't exploit the workforce. But these minor and somewhat progressive reforms only alters the shadow. They don't even begin to address the substance, which is the greater capitalist system. So instead of begging corporations to be nicer to us, or asking the king to be more benevolent, Perhaps we should replace corporations and overthrow the king. Capitalism doesn't even meet the most basic of human needs. So perhaps we should overthrow it and replace it with a system that promotes freedom and voluntary participation and association with others. Where work is encouraged to help human beings in their self-development and to better society as a whole. And also allow human beings to develop their innate curiosities and creativities. Personally, I think all human beings are born with an innate desire for freedom. And to quote the late great philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, man is born free, but everywhere he is in chains. And to quote another late great philosopher, Karl Marx, who said of the capitalist system, the proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. The pages of history are littered with stories about class struggle and liberation. All throughout history, up until the present, Modern times is no different. People are always fighting to free themselves from the constraints on the viability of human life. Of course, we need the necessities like food, water, clothing, and shelter. But we also desire for so much more. We want respect, dignity. We want bread and roses. We want a society that allows human beings to flourish. We want happiness. We long for the good life to paraphrase some of the ancient Greek philosophers. Constraints are opposed on us by external means, and over time, elaborate systems of power have been developed. One of the first of these power systems was the nation-state, and whether it is justified is for all of us citizens to judge. I happen to believe the nation-state is illegitimate, but under certain instances can the state be justified. So, in relation to enormous transnational corporations, the state might be the only thing that can protect us from institutions of so much wealth and concentrated power on an enormous scale. Because the state, at least in theory, is democratic and responsive to public pressures. That's its fatal flaw. Corporations are not. They are private tyrannies. 
That's why the target of so much of the right-wing propaganda and rhetoric is directed to abolishing the state and to do away altogether with federal regulations. Because without the state, transnational corporations will have a freer hand to loot, rob, and exploit the world. Even now, many corporations are richer than some of the world governments. But not the U.S. federal government. It's still too powerful. Which is why Republicans focus on states' rights. Because huge transnational corporations can exercise their power much easier over the states. They also put them in competition to see who can offer the lowest corporate tax rate. The CEOs of these massive conglomerates are richer and more powerful than the kings and queens that ruled over the subjects in the medieval period during the era of feudalism. So in a way, the state kind of serves as a cage to protect the people from corporate exploitation and unfettered capitalism. So this cage... I think at least in the present, should be maintained, and over time we should extend it, without breaking down the bonds and fetters of society that promote ideals like freedom, justice, and solidarity. And as it relates to the corporation, I think they should be replaced with worker-owned and controlled democratically organized institutions, like co-ops. And the blueprint is already there. Just take, for example, Mondragon, the world's largest co-op based in Spain. And it functions much differently than corporations. So for starters, managers are elected by the workforce. And when that manager's term is up, they can choose to re-elect the incumbent or choose someone new, possibly from their ranks. I think this rotation of responsibility is a good thing. I also think that institutions should be developed to emphasize democratic participation and also promote bottom-up initiatives. There's also wage ceilings at Mondragon, so managers and executives can't make more than six times the lowest wage. What capitalism tries to do is remove all elements of solidarity and democracy in society. They basically want to create a system with unfettered capitalism where all regulations are non-existent. There's a lot of mainstream rhetoric about democracy, but that's just propaganda. Nobody with wealth and privilege has ever been a fan of real democracy because it interferes with that privilege. There's an emphasis of capitalist rhetoric on personal responsibility, the so-called free market self-interest. But that's only partly true, because in function, the rich actually want a powerful state for protection. They also want tax breaks, subsidies, and corporate welfare. They want a rigged system, where it's free market capitalism for the poor and the generous protections of the nanny state for the rich. In fact, capitalism has actually never even been tried, and the economists know this. A true capitalist system would fail and collapse in almost no time. So what we have instead is a rigged economy where the taxpayers fund the cost of research and development while the profits are all private. The Pentagon, for example, is essentially a funnel of taxpayer money to fit the bill for private high-tech industry. And of course, that's all under the guise of defense. And this system is now too big to fail. And anytime incompetent CEOs or greedy bankers crash the economy... The taxpayer is there to bail them out. In fact, capitalism is bailed out by socialism every seven years. In a real capitalist system, banks and corporations would be left to fail and implode on their own. And the vehicles for capitalism are corporations. And these unjust hierarchies place some above others. And this kind of social structure is illegitimate by definition. There's absolutely no hint of democracy in these corporations. They are unjust hierarchies and private tyrannies, period. Corporations place decision-making power in the hands of a select few, a specialized class. And this leads to concentration of wealth and power and transforms 
workers into mere tools of production, stripping away their dignity and eventually their humanity. To paraphrase Wilhelm von Humboldt, a laborer that produces on demand by external command has lost all sense of dignity, autonomy, self-worth. So while we might admire the product of a skilled artisan, we despise what they have become. They are not free. They are not able to display their own creative genius, but instead are transformed, robbing them of pleasure associated with their profession or skill. So we might admire what they do, but we despise what they are. Definitely hits home for me. I think we've all been there under external command of a boss, robbing us of autonomy, self-worth, dignity, producing some sort of widget for a for-profit company, and completely alienating us from our work and our skill set. Wage slavery and alienation from work is a very contentious idea. In fact, the Union during the Civil War actually thought they were fighting against wage slavery. And it was also the slogan of the Republican Party under Lincoln. And that's because wage slavery isn't all that much different than chattel slavery, other than it's temporary. And while wage slavery is the process of renting yourself to a master for subsistence, we don't all work 24-7, 365. In fact, workers won the 40-hour work week long ago after long, hard struggle. And maybe someday a worker can even hope to retire if they are lucky enough. Over the years, the courts began to give corporations more and more rights over the workforce to rob, exploit, and steal. And these unaccountable private tyrannies eventually gained the power of immortal persons. Not Congress nor the executive have given these collectivist institutions extraordinary rights. They have all been granted by the court system. And it wasn't until 1886, in the case of Santa Clara County, versus the Southern Pacific Railroad that the courts first appeared to grant corporations the rights of an individual under the 14th Amendment, which is absolutely ludicrous. It's absurd. Corporations are not people. They don't deserve any rights. People deserve rights. Individuals deserve rights, not collectivist institutions. And with the Citizens United ruling, corporations are now able to basically buy elections, Prior to Citizens United, they still bought elections, but they did it rather tacitly and undercover. Now they can buy elections right out in the open and get away with it, as the American court system continues to make a mockery of democracy. And now, in Delaware, Joe Biden's home state, a state that is notoriously friendly to corporations, a state that's already removed interest limits on credit cards so that credit card companies can charge virtually whatever they want, enabling a very predatory form of capitalist banking which has caused financial institutions to flock there in order to maximize profits and exploit the poor. It is in this state, Delaware, where some municipalities and cities want to give corporations the right to vote in elections, creating an outright mockery of so-called American democracy. The courts granted corporations the rights of immortal persons, and they can just as easily be taken away. They were not given these rights through legislation or act of Congress. And these American-based corporations, which are now transnational and enormous in scale, were given their charters by the states, like Delaware, at inception. And this is how the American system works. And the states basically compete with one another to lure corporations by seeing who can generate the best gift package in the form of tax breaks, subsidies, and generous giveaways, all courtesy of the taxpayer. If we ever seriously wanted to rein in this system, we could simply mandate a corporate tax at the federal or international level, 
while we try to eliminate public gifts and giveaways to private corporations. A better method might be to simply eliminate these corporations by simply revoking their state charter. These corporations could also just be taken over by the state, putting them under democratic control and influenced directly by the public. These corporations could also be replaced with co-ops and democratically organized institutions owned and operated by the workers or the community they operate in. So instead of a system that rewards an ownership class of corporate shareholders, we could organize a society around community stakeholders or the local region that a business operates in. And the workers who dedicate so much of their lives to a company they work for could potentially exercise voluntary control for how and where they dedicate their most precious resource, their time. So it would seem that the courts are to blame for why the corporations have so much wealth and power in our modern society. But it's not just the courts, but it's the entire political and socioeconomic system driven by elites and the technocrats that are subservient to their interests, who are also responsible for the current corporate climate and the domination and control these private tyrannies exercise over every facet of our lives. It's already been mentioned that workers, who are essentially an army of wage slaves, have virtually no say in the economic system or in the corporate hierarchies that they spend so much of their lives serving. So the economic system is virtually excluded to the workers. But what about the political system? Well, for starters, what's called capitalism has actually never even been tried. What's usually meant by capitalism is a system of generous state protections for the rich and powerful and free market capitalism for everyone else. And this is an attack on working class and poor people around the globe. And this attack is coming from the right and what's also called the left. This is known as the Washington Consensus or now so-called neoliberalism, which is not new, nor is it liberal. It amounts to little more than class warfare. The whole idea behind neoliberalism is privatization of everything, opening up society to even more domination from corporations, leaving behind only the repressive elements of the state, like police, military, and the prison system. Because there has to be a place to put people who don't contribute to the socioeconomic system, the superfluous, which includes poor people, the homeless, dissidents, subversives, revolutionaries, anarchists, criminals, resistors, and everyone else that stands in the way of the ruling class's preferred way of living. And as I'm sure many of you have noticed, there's also a push from the right to privatize prisons, police, and private security forces in an obvious conflict of interest that is clearly associated with the best criminal justice system money can buy. So what you end up with is private prisons suing local and state governments, threatening to close if they can't maintain a certain occupancy rate. Ridiculous. And speaking of the absurd, America is probably the only country in the world where politicians get on stage and debate each other on who's going to be tougher on crime. Like, what does that even mean? And the U.S. is already a prison state. Incarceration rates in America are off the charts when compared to the rest of the industrialized world, even though crime levels are very comparable. And even though crime rates are stagnant in the U.S. and have been for quite some time, the perception of crime is through the roof. And that's a product of the media, the entire intellectual system, and the manufacturing of consent. And the way I see it, the war on drugs is also a race war, which is also a class war. So take, for example, a victimless crime, like simple drug possession, which is just an excuse to lock people up, effectively removing them from society. So what I'd like to do now is read some opinion pieces 
and some statistics on the U.S. mass incarceration problem. Some of this information was accessed via Vera.org and the World Population Review. So mass incarceration by the numbers. The United States is the epicenter of mass incarceration. From its origins in slavery to the rise of the war on drugs in the late 20th century, the U.S. has incarcerated millions, disproportionately targeting and incarcerating black people and other people of color, as well as minorities and especially people living in poverty. The U.S. is home to 4% of the world's population, although 16% of the world's prisoners are incarcerated in the United States. The number of people incarcerated in U.S. jails and prisons has increased dramatically since 1980. Approximately 2 million people are incarcerated today, compared to roughly 500,000 people in 1980. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the number of people incarcerated began to decrease, but now that's on the rise. Much of this can be attributed to the Joe Biden presidential administration, which looks to continue to proliferate mass incarceration. Joe Biden has always been subservient to the U.S. police state and the prison industrial complex as one of the chief architects behind the crime bill and the war on drugs. Racial disparities in mass incarceration are great. Legal scholar Michelle Alexander writes that mass incarceration in the United States is the new Jim Crow. Black people and other people of color are incarcerated at much higher rates than their white counterparts. Recent evidence also suggests that although the population of incarcerated people has decreased since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, racial disparities are actually on the rise. Black people are incarcerated in state prisons at nearly four times the rate of white people. One in 41 black adults in the United States are incarcerated in state prisons right now. Proponents of incarceration often claim that putting people behind bars is the surest way to decrease crime. However, decades of research prove otherwise. A 2015 study concluded that since 2010, the increased use of incarceration accounted for nearly 0% of the overall reduction in crime. At least 19 states have decreased both their crime rate and incarceration rate since 2000. Incarceration is also very expensive. The United States spent roughly $33 billion on incarceration in 2000 for essentially the same level of public safety it achieved in 1975 for $7.4 billion. That's nearly a quarter of the cost. Mass incarceration has steadily increased over the last four decades, disproportionately targeting black people, other people of color, minorities, and those living in poverty. Mass incarceration is a civil rights issue. Organizations such as the Prison Policy Initiative argue that incarceration dehumanizes poor people and minorities, damages already marginalized communities, and often jails people for small-scale offenses such as marijuana possession. Additionally, evidence exists that high incarceration rates actually do not increase public safety. Prison rates have skyrocketed in the last few decades in the United States, with the highest rates being seen in Louisiana and Oklahoma. There are more people in U.S. jails than any other country in the world, and the prison population in the United States exceeds 2 million. Coming in second on the list is China, which is a much larger country than the United States, with a total population of over a billion people and yet less than 2 million incarcerated. Brazil is third, with India and Russia rounding out the top five with the most people in prison. Not only does the U.S. incarcerate more people than any other country in the world, but it also has the highest incarceration rate. So the U.S. is first, with Rwanda, Turkmenistan, El Salvador, and Cuba rounding out the top five. And while the prison population was trending downward during the global pandemic, I think it's really easy to forget that the prisoners were sitting ducks during the entire pandemic, being extremely vulnerable to sickness and disease, locked up in overcrowded jails and underfunded prisons. 
I'd like to now remember a recent time in history when a very laughable piece of propaganda was put out by the Joe Biden administration, boasting about what they called the largest act of clemency in a generation, a massive pardon for all people convicted of federal marijuana possession. But in reality, it didn't lead to many people getting out of prison. In fact, it led to exactly zero people being released. It was little more than a publicity stunt, which basically sums up the entire Democratic Party pretty well. Just about the only thing that separates Republicans and Democrats is their rhetoric. and Maybe some stuff about abortion. If the Democrats were serious about legalizing marijuana or ending mass incarceration, codifying Roe v. Wade, doing away with capital punishment, they could have already used their political power to reform the criminal justice system and add new legislation. But instead, they chose to dangle a carrot, gaslight their base, and use this platform as a campaign contribution opportunity. Which leads me to quote a famous anarchist, Emma Goldman, if voting changed anything, they'd make it illegal. And speaking of anarchism, I think now's a good time to compare some political ideologies. Anarchism, or what's sometimes called libertarianism, has a very rich history, especially in Europe. So libertarianism is usually associated with a socialist, anti-statist branch. Socialist libertarian, if you will. But it broke off from the pro-statist branch which is now associated more with communism, which involves a highly powerful centralized state controlled by autocrats and powerful government bureaucrats, which was a massive failure because communism in practice, let's say in the Soviet Union, is not very different from the so-called capitalist democracies. It just places power in the hands of a powerful and unaccountable class of government bureaucrats and takes it away from the ownership class of investors that dominates the capitalist economic system and essentially runs the government. These terms of political discourse are very confusing and very unclear. They are propagandized and can be very misleading. One thing is true, though, that the United States is not a functioning democracy, more like an oligarchy or an outright kleptocracy, which is basically defined as government for the rich, by the rich. And while I think Marxism, socialism, and democracy are all interesting in theory, the way communism was practiced in the Soviet Union was neither socialist nor democratic. It was a hell for workers who didn't find themselves much better off following the revolution. The winners of the Russian Revolution were the leaders of the new vanguard party, the Bolsheviks, the powerful bureaucrats who took over control of the state. Marx talked a lot about the dictatorship of the proletariat, but he was speaking more figuratively. Although Lenin was literally a dictator, and basically tore down all worker councils and labor-based organizations following the revolution. And after Lenin's death, Stalin took the reins of power and became one of the harshest dictators and most brutal murderers in human history. There is another strain of libertarianism, a strictly American strain, which is some kind of dystopian hyper-capitalism where all things like infrastructure, for example bridges and roads, are privatized. And if you want to use them, you have to pay a toll. And so are most other public institutions, like hospitals and schools. So you can attend a school and gain education if you can afford the tuition. This kind of society would be... What's called American libertarianism would allow corporations a freer hand, giving them unfettered power, free of regulation, making it easier for them to exploit, steal, and destroy the planet. And if you have a problem with that, you would have to take the corporations to court and sue them. But that plays right into their hands, because corporations already dominate the U.S. legal system. And if you took them to court, you'd have an uphill battle, because they have an almost unlimited budget 
for high-paid lawyers and court costs, and the system is already rigged in their favor. What's described as American libertarianism would be an absolutely terrible society, and the only people that trumpet this type of political ideology are the American right wing, and people like Ayn Rand and Milton Freeman. However, one thing I agree with Milton Freeman on is that corporations are not humanitarian organizations. They are profit-seeking institutions driven by wealth, self-interest, and greed. They couldn't possibly behave in any other conceivable way, so they must be checked by the government. And only the federal government is powerful enough to take them on. But it won't be long before transnational corporations are more powerful and wealthy than many federal governments. And this is exactly the way society is trending. And it will only get worse if capitalism and neoliberalism is allowed to continue down its current path. There's also the phenomenon of regulatory capture, where the legislators and regulators are overtaken by corporate shills. And power is taken away from the people and put in the hands of unaccountable private tyrannies and boards made up of corporate lawyers, bankers, and executives. This is already happening right now. Take, for example, the Federal Reserve, the World Banking Organization, and Federal Trade Organizations. These institutions are unaccountable, and they're staffed with hand-chosen technocrats who will be subservient to elite interest. And the right is determined to repeal any and all regulations, whatever they are, giving corporations the green light to exploit the workforce and pollute the environment. This is a major problem as climate crisis continues to accelerate and we are wasting valuable time when we could be acting. The tipping point might already be here. We're already in a massive extinction event and the possibility for organized life and future generations hangs in the balance. It's possible human beings could succumb to the climate apocalypse, going the way of the dinosaurs. However, in this scenario, human beings are the asteroid behind the massive extinction event. There will be a planet after capitalism. But will there be human life on planet Earth after capitalism? I think this question is worth pondering for a while. Back to the legal system and its shortcomings. I think there's two codes of law in the United States. One for the rich and powerful, and one for everybody else. Bernie Madoff showed us that the only time the U.S. criminal justice system comes after the wealthy is when they steal from other wealthy people. If Bernie Madoff was bilking poor people in Queens, he'd probably still be in business. He might even get the cover of Forbes. Stories about corporations destroying the environment are everywhere, from poisoning drinking water to the ubiquitous forever chemicals harmful to biological organisms. I even saw the investigation for the cause of Louisiana's famous cancer alley have concluded, but I severely doubt anything will come of it. When corporations pollute and destroy the environment, economists even have a term for it. It's called an externality, and nothing can be done about it, allegedly. It's just the cost of doing business. And of course the environment doesn't get a vote in elections, and neither do future generations. And when corporations break the law and violate environmental regulations, they might get a small fine, a slap on the wrist. And the executives rarely even get reprimanded. And the next day it's back to business as usual. The fines might even be looked at as a business expense. It's possible paying a fine might even be cheaper than following the rules. And if the corporations don't like the rules, they can buy politicians to change them. In a capitalist system, the only thing that matters is the bottom line. Profits. There is no ethics. There is no morals or solidarity. So who could blame them for their actions? Let's consider another scenario that illustrates the two justice systems in the United States. So what would happen if some minority polluted the drinking water of an entire town? Say some town in Alabama. What do you think might happen? 
I really don't want to speculate on hypotheticals, but I think they'd probably get the death penalty. Whatever the penalty might be, it wouldn't be a small fine or a slap on the wrist. A nightmare. Poverty. And now for the final topic of this show, the COVID economy. COVID-19 was an extremely valuable opportunity for right-wing governments around the world to flex their power over the population. Because, of course, the greatest enemy of, the go- of any government is the domestic population. Empires almost always crumble from within. The great philosopher David Hume articulated the political paradox, stating that power resides within the governed, as the majority is usually ruled over by a small group of elites, and the ruling class only has the power of opinion, the power to persuade, or what Walter Lippmann went on to describe as the manufacturing of consent. This is especially true of democratic societies, where the power to use violence against civilians is curbed. So, of course, that power isn't zero. For example, the U.S. leads the rest of the world in murders by cops, both in number and by rate. But the U.S. is not totalitarian by any measure. But, for example, Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union had an almost unlimited ability to use violence against the domestic population. And the secret police rounded up political targets, subversives, and threw them in ghettos, concentration camps, the gulag, or just outright exterminated them. There's also a rich history of free speech in the United States. So the magnitude and degree of the manufacturing of consent is striking, because the censorship is not coming directly from government oversight. People are disciplined. So intellectuals, cultural managers, executives, and others in high places self-censor because it's instilled in them since birth. There's a filtering system, the entire Western education system, where people are indoctrinated and trained to be obedient and subservient to power. And the people that rise to leadership roles in society, like, for example, editor or executive or cultural manager or university president, all have capitalist values internalized, or they wouldn't have risen to their position in society. Because it's difficult to live with yourself, most people can't say one thing but believe another. But the manufacture of consent does not come from the media alone. It runs deep throughout all aspects of society. So from grade school, to the ivory towers of higher education institutions, to the offices of the university presidents, to corporate boardrooms and corner offices, to Washington think tanks, It comes from the marketing and public relations meetings, the offices of the lobbyists, and at the corporate law firms, and anyone else who fights for the privileges of a very tiny segment of the population, a segment with extreme concentrations of wealth, power, and influence in capitalist society. All the COVID-19 pandemic did was tighten up the capitalist machine. The ruling class always uses fear as an excuse to roll back human rights, expand the surveillance unleash the police state and the limited violence they are empowered to carry out against the general population. It also helps to feed the military-industrial complex. Fear is the most valuable tool the ruling class uses against the domestic population to keep them in line. During the global pandemic, the work-from-home movement exploded. The corporations were still able to survey their workforce. Virtual meeting platforms like Zoom and Teams took off. We find ourselves at home, on technology, all day long. And no doubt our phones and computers and applications were tracking our every movement, our every keystroke, and were developing facial recognition technologies using filters and developing secret methods to turn on our cameras and microphones without us even knowing it. This is where the corporate state nexus excels. And we were using these technologies willingly. It was not forced on us. The corporate state nexus runs deep. 
So from social media companies and technology companies like Twitter, Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, both Siri and Alexa all work with foreign and domestic governments in order to maintain a constant surveillance network, a surveillance state over the world population at large. Before I mention the American police state, I need to first discuss the crazed American gun culture. The United States leads the world in possession of firearms, gun deaths, and mass shootings each and every year by a very wide margin. So what might be a domestic dispute in another country winds up a gun homicide in the United States. I could go on for hours, almost endlessly, about the U.S. crazed gun culture, but I guess that's for another podcast. So on to the U.S. police state. Every year, it's estimated that 250,000 civilians are injured by police. And of course, a huge chunk of local, state, and federal tax money is, is used just to defend police officers in court and compensate victims who are the targets of their violence. Many of the victims of police violence and homicides are unarmed, and a large percentage of those are black. A large number of victims of police violence are unarmed, and many of those victims are shot in the back while trying to flee the scene and escape police violence. In the United States, we spend around $100,000 per officer each year on technical training and equip them with militarized weaponry, apparently so they can stand around until the coast is clear during any mass shooting event. The number of people murdered by police each year is more than double those killed in U.S. mass shootings, and the vast majority of those police homicides involve guns. The number of people killed by police has been on the rise in each of the last five years, even in spite of the Black Lives Matter movement and the nationwide protests that have been going on for years organically. At least 1,192 people were killed in 2022 alone, the highest number in a decade. Police shootings represented about 5% of all gun homicides in 2020 and 2021, and police killings represented 5% of all U.S. homicides. U.S. police kill more people in days than police in other countries do in years. In England and Wales, there were only 55 police shootings in the last 24 years, while there were 59 police shootings in the first 24 days of 2015. In Australia, there were 94 police shootings between 1992 and 2011. In the U.S., there were 97 fatal police shootings in March of 2015. I could go on and on, but I think you get the idea. Police violence, including the murder of countless civilians, has been a huge problem in the United States for quite some time. Of course, police violence is not a strictly U.S. problem. In fact, Brazil, Venezuela, India, Syria, and El Salvador actually all ranked higher. Police violence, that's where Joe Biden comes in. Biden's always been a hardliner on crime, placing him pretty far right on the political spectrum. He's the same guy who supposedly is the most progressive president of all time. That's ludicrous. Joe Biden was one of the chief architects behind the infamous 1994 crime bill, which led to a mass incarceration and locking up a disproportionate number of blacks. So the way I see it, the race war, the class war, and the war on drugs are all one and the same. Biden now wants to drastically increase police funding which will put at least another 100,000 officers on the streets, terrorizing citizens and community members. Biden was recently quoted as saying, We should all agree the answer is not to defund the police, but to fund the police. He went on to say, Fund them. Fund them. Fund them with resources and training. Wow. How eloquent. Now on to the military-industrial complex. The United States has always been a nascent empire. 
an empire since inception, when it won independence from Britain, starting with the War of 1776, and it's essentially been at war ever since. If you can believe the propaganda, the intellectuals want you to believe that America is unique in history, with noble intentions. Supposedly, it's some city on the hill. If you can believe that, then it's almost like the U.S. military is aimlessly wandering the globe, bouncing from conflict to conflict, blunder to blunder, from Korea to the war in Vietnam to Iraq and Afghanistan. The United States is just trying to spread democracy, virtue, and morality, and whatever baloney that the intellectual community wants you to believe in subservience to power and the elite agenda. It's quite obvious that the leadership of the United States choose military conflict to engage and to advance their strategic agenda and to increase their political power and for economic reasons. So, for example, the war in Iraq was obviously about oil. And you can even ask the Iraqis. They were quite aware what the war was about. It was not to spread democracy. I think less than 5% of the Iraqi people thought that the United States was there to help them spread democracy or to help their government become more democratic. That's completely ludicrous, and nobody believes it outside the United States. And the U.S. does not even choose military conflict in order to, quote, spread democracy. That's completely ludicrous. The United States actually allies with the majority of the world's autocrats, dictators, criminals, and perpetrators of human rights abuses, because those are typically the countries with the best investment climate for capitalism, because any labor uprising or populist movement is usually extinguished by force in those countries. The media and the intellectual community as a whole use fear to keep the population under control. To quote H.L. Mencken, the whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed by menacing it with an endless series of hobgoblins, all of them imaginary. Of course, the U.S. ruling class used communism as their favorite hobgoblin. So after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a few years of stagnation in the U.S. military-industrial complex. But inevitably, and not long after, the U.S. military budget began to rise. And by now, the U.S. spends more on the military than the rest of the world combined. Of course, Joe Biden has always been a valuable steward and loyal servant to the military-industrial complex, voting for two wars in Iraq as well as a war in Afghanistan. Obviously, these invasions and displays of military aggression were more than a mistake. They were war crimes. The U.S. military is also the world's largest polluter. And these wars cost the lives of millions of people, displacing millions of more refugees. These wars were also very costly, to the tune of $857 billion for the war in Iraq. The war in Afghanistan cost as much as $300 million per day and $2 trillion in total. The estimates for the total cost of the global war on terror are around $8 trillion. So, war and profiteering is good business if you're a military and defense contractor like Raytheon, Halliburton, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Bechtel, and anyone else I didn't mention. I think a for-profit's weapon industry is more reprehensible than a for-profit prison system because of the catastrophic death, violence, and destruction it showcases to the rest of the world which is why John Maynard Keynes, the most famous post-World War II economist who would go on to make GDP famous, said that of defense spending, it should be excluded from GDP. There's an obvious conflict of interest when perpetual war leads to perpetual economic expansion. Defense is also a very propagandized definition for whatever the agenda and objectives are for the United States military and their leadership. Up until 1947, the Department of Defense was called the Department of War. 
I guess back in the old days, people were just a lot more honest. Flash forward to modern times. The U.S. military budget has been on the rise since 2015, and it's been increased every year under the Biden administration. In 2023, it's estimated that the U.S. military budget will come in just under $900 billion. That's just the money that we know about. Who could forget the press conference by Donald Rumsfeld in 2001, reporting that the Pentagon couldn't account for $2.3 trillion in missing funds? And that's actually not unusual. And a 2021 audit of the Pentagon found that it was not able to account for 61% of its funds. Billions of dollars every year gone missing. Where does it all go? And the Pentagon budget must rise every single year, no matter what, in times of war and peace. Because the function of the Pentagon has little to do with defense. It's all about funding private high-tech industry just under the guise of defense. The Pentagon functions as a funnel of taxpayer money to private business. And just about every vibrant sector of the economy works this way. So from banking to computers, telecommunication, biotechnology, pharmaceuticals, and the internet, all of them rely on taxpayer funding. America is not a truly capitalist country. No country is. And transnational corporations require a powerful nanny state to finance research and development. So elites are for socialism as long as it's for them. And as long as it's rugged free market capitalism for the poor and everybody else. That's basically neoliberalism, globalism, and capitalism in a nutshell. Another characteristic of neoliberalism is putting workers of the global south in competition with workers of the industrialized countries of the west. In a sick and twisted method of class warfare, this works to keep wages down for everyone involved. And there's always the threat of job transfer to squash worker organizing and unionization efforts. Corporations can also use their profits to create excess capacities overseas as a weapon against the domestic workforce. So they can shift production overseas when there's a strike and they can continue the same output without missing a beat. And now back to the military-industrial complex. And to quote George Orwell, war is peace. The U.S. got involved in the conflict in Ukraine almost as fast as it withdrew from Afghanistan. And while Ukraine is now the victim of Russian aggression, I support peace and diplomacy over an endless proxy war that could eventually result in World War III and nuclear annihilation. And it seems like the U.S. has stalled any and all peace negotiations between Russia, Ukraine, and the West. Hopefully, there will be a world after the war in Ukraine, which is why I support peace and the reintegration of Russia back into the global system. Everyone loses in a world war. Everyone loses in a nuclear I like to now read a quote often attributed to Albert Einstein. He said, I know not with what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. But actually, I think that's wishful thinking from Einstein, because I don't think anyone will be around after World War III. And before I say too much about the war in Ukraine, I'd like to table that discussion, possibly for another podcast episode. I'd like to end with some comments about the COVID economy, which was one of the greatest wealth transfers in human history and has contributed to the new gilded age we find ourselves in with record levels of inequality. And this wealth transfer was accelerated by the Reagan-Thatcher era reforms and ushered in a new level of privatization, sometimes called neoliberalism, which is again basically code for class warfare. In a recent Oxfam article, it was revealed that the richest 1% of all people amassed about two-thirds of all new wealth created in the last two years. The pandemic even created a new billionaire every 30 hours. The 10 richest men in the world doubled their fortune during the pandemic, and billionaire wealth surged 70% during the pandemic, up $2.1 trillion. 
And on one single day in 2021, Elon Musk made more than $36 billion. Elon also topped the Forbes list in 2022 with a net worth of $251 billion. Jeff Bezos came in second at a net worth of $151 billion, and Bill Gates was third at a net worth of $106 billion. And this comes at a time when U.S. minimum wage is $7.25 per hour. That couldn't afford you a decent place to live or food. That's not a living wage anywhere in the United States. And in the U.S., minimum wage hasn't been increased since 2009, at a time when America's wealthy are making money hand over fist. Again, I'd like to remind people that the pandemic was pretty much the only time, at least I can remember, that the stock market shot up and yet people still lost their jobs. Corporations are now more profitable and productive than ever, and this greedflation has also led to one of the worst cost-of-living crises in decades. There's also a looming commercial real estate bubble, which might be driving the end of work from home, as corporations want to exercise their control and power over the workforce, while also ensuring the bottom doesn't fall out of commercial real estate and the bubble doesn't just burst. It's clear and obvious that the right-wing push to end work from home has absolutely nothing to do with productivity or profits, and everything to do with exercising power and control over the working class. Well, that's going to do it for this installment of Necessary Illusions. You can find me on Twitter. Please leave me any comments or questions you might have. I hope I've been able to stimulate some interesting thoughts and ideas during the course of this episode. I hope to facilitate more future discussions. I have a lot more content planned, so please check back for more episodes of Necessary Illusions. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out.